0: everybody, Lori Hybe here. Welcome to the Social Capital Podcast. Our show notes are found at socialcapitalpodcast.com. If you'd like to get more involved in the conversation, join our Facebook group at Social Capital Network, a community of trust, reciprocity, and relationships. You can also follow me on LinkedIn. This week's guest is Tim Fulton. Tim owned and operated several small retail businesses in Miami. He also taught as an adjunct professor and served as the interim director of the Family Business Institute at Florida International University. Tim was a Vistage chair for 16 years, retired from Vistage in December 2018, and currently enjoys chair emeritus status. In 1992, he started his own small business consulting firm, Small Business Matters. He has an award-winning newsletter and has self-published two different books and co-hosts a popular podcast. He also hosts one of the largest annual events in Atlanta for small business owners. Tim, welcome
1: to the show. Hey, Lori, thank you. It is a pleasure. I'm I'm so happy to be with you today.
0: I am excited for you to be here. I mean, your your rap sheet that I just read is quite <laughs> impressive.
1: <laughs> well, what's funny is whenever I hear that, I hear the the chair emeritus, when I was with Vistage, I didn't know that such thing existed. And then I retired, and a couple months later, I got uh, in the mail a letter from Vistage congratulating me on being recognized as chair emeritus. And I'd heard that word before, but I wasn't quite sure uh, what it meant. So I went to the best source. I went to my youngest son, Carter, who's, I guess he was 27 at the time, I said, Carter Emeritus, any any idea what that means? He said, "Dad, I think that's Latin for almost dead." <laughs> uh, well, maybe not as not as good as I thought it was.
0: Oh, oh, wow! Well, that that's a fun little story. I didn't know what it was, so uh, I'm excited <laughs> that you <dead>. share that. <laughs> that's fantastic. All right, so. Um, As someone who's been uh, in the entrepreneurial seat and has worked alongside many entrepreneurs, what are some of the entrepreneurial myths that uh, you're aware of?
1: Yeah, you know, Lori, it's funny as as I've I've been around a lot of business owners, it's interesting. I'll hear them say things or I'll see them do things and I'll say, well, I don't know why they're doing that because that's not consistent with what most people think and kind of find out that, you know, people, there are some myths about entrepreneurship that just tend to pervade no matter what. And so like an example, many of your listeners may be familiar with the book, the e-myth, one of my favorite books of all time Mm -hmm. written by Michael Gerber, maybe the first book I ever read about a business and the whole book, the e-myth is based on the entrepreneurial myth. And the myth is, you know, we, we tend to think that most small businesses are started by uh, entrepreneurs, you know people with with great ideas and initiative and drive and and vision. And what the reality is what Kerber found is that's not the fact that most small businesses instead are started by by the term he used was technicians. You know a technician is someone who has a particular skill and expertise and experience that causes them to then want to start a business around that uh, experience. so the you know, the technician is the chef who opens up the restaurant or the attorney who starts his, his or her own law practice. And so that's how most small businesses get started, not by the the idealist, so to speak, uh, entrepreneur, but by the technician. And and that also speaks to why so many businesses fail. And, you know, there's, there's disagreement about what that rate is, but let's just say maybe 50 percent of all small businesses fail. And many people feel like it's part of that reason why there's such a high failure rate is because so many businesses get started by these these technicians. So that's one myth that I, I see, you know, over a long period of time continues to be with us. Another one that's I find kind of interesting because I hear this quite often is um, the, the belief that the business is going to get easier over time. That if I can just stay, hang in this business for a while longer, it it has to get easier. And yet, the reality is, I've never found that to be the case. the The business never gets easier. In fact, it usually gets more complicated. Um, and and really easy to think about that is, you know, if 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 it's just you and I having a conversation, there are two lines of communication, right? Me to you, you to me, two lines of communication. So then, if I if we add a third person to this conversation. Now, instead of having two lines of communication, we now have six lines of communication. If we add a fourth person to the conversation, we now, instead of having six lines of communication, we've now got 12 lines of communication. Well, you can see how this plays out in a business. Mm -hmm. As we add employees, as we add customers, the business inherently gets more complicated. So it can't get easier. Now, we may get better we may get more skillful we'll get more experienced but the business never gets easier and, and i know business ever owners never want to hear that but it, it's it's just a fact it, it can't ever get easier and and maybe one other myth i'll share with with you laurie is um, and i read about this and it made perfect sense when i read it but it, it definitely debunked a, a myth that i had and the myth is that the successful business owners tend to Be smart. They tend to have high IQ. And there was actually a study that was done, and they took a group of very successful small business owners and they measured their intelligence, they measured their IQ, and they found no correlation between IQ and success in small business. Which for many of us, for me particularly, that was great news because I, I thought I had to be really smart to be successful in small business, but <laughs> no correlation between IQ and success in small business. So then they said, well, if it's not IQ, you know, maybe it is one's uh, EQ. EQ, you, I'm sure you know this is sure. your emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And as as judged by your emotional quotient. And it's something that you can be tested and scored on, your emotional intelligence. And so they took the same group of very successful entrepreneurs, measured their emotional intelligence. And in this case, they found some correlation between EQ and uh, success. But it wasn't wasn't the silver bullet they were looking for in terms of what drives success for a small business owner. So the last thing they, they looked at was your AQ. And what they found in this case was a direct correlation between your AQ and success in small business. And, and Lori, your, your AQ stands for your adversity quotient, your adversity quotient. Essentially, it measures for an individual What's the likelihood that, that that I can overcome adversity? That I can overcome, you know, a bump in the road. Something bad happens, and so when they tested this group of successful business owners, they found a, a direct correlation between A.Q. and success in small business, and that that just makes sense if you, if you think about it. You know, on any given day, Lori, I'll ask uh, I'll ask you. How today, how many adverse events do you think you have faced?
0: (laughs) Oh, I don't even know. (laughs) I I mean, today alone, I'm sure there's a handful. uh, There's definitely um, a handful for sure. Yeah.
1: So the average adult faces 16 to 20 adverse events in any given day. Mm -hmm. That number has doubled over the last 20 years, which which I, I think is interesting. Makes sense. That number has doubled over the last 20 years. And so think about it, 16 to 20 adverse events. And that's the average human being. That's not a small business owner. So imagine what happens to that number when we when we when we introduce the idea of running a small business to that. So it just makes sense to be successful in, in business today, small business. You've got to be able to overcome adversity on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that, that people who have a high AQ, they share a, a similar mantra, a similar mindset. And that mindset is, this too shall pass, right? That I, I can get past this because I got through this yesterday. I got through it the day before. This too shall pass. People with high AQ. The flip side, people that do not have an high, high AQ the mindset when they face adversity is, crap, this is horrible. I'll never get past it. And so you, you see the difference in what impact it can have on one's uh, uh, chances of success in small business. So that's just another kind of myth in, in, in small business. I've got to be really smart where the real answer is I've, I've got to be able to overcome adversity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that, that totally makes sense. And, um, it, it is really interesting, actually. I, I love the initial myths that you've tossed out there as well. I mean, the E-Myth definitely talks about the technicians. Um, and I, I kind of had a little aha moment when you were talking about more people. And it's harder, actually, because mm-hmm. of the layers of communication involved. Um, but this is quite fascinating with the adversity quotient. So thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, uh, here's an interesting question. So entrepreneurship is on the decline in the U.S. Why is that?
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and and Lori, it's sad, sad to me. Someone who's been in small business his whole life. You know, I grew up, you know, delivering newspapers on a bicycle as a kid. I sold bumper skis, bumper stickers at school. I cut neighbors' yards. I'm sure many of your listeners very similar i was an entrepreneur from a very early age maybe it's it's part of my dna my blood so it's sad to me when i see over the last decade that the the number of small businesses getting started is on the decline for the first time in the history of this country and and add to that the number of small businesses closing is increasing and much of that is is well maybe a couple of factors one is just due to aging we have an aging population, particularly the baby boomers, you know, my generation, as we're getting up in age, you know, we have a business on our hands. And what what are our options? Well, maybe I can sell it. Maybe I can pass it to a, a, a partner or a family member, or more likely, I'm just going to shut the business down. So we've got, you know, more businesses than ever that are shutting down, again, a lot due to generational uh, issues, and then fewer businesses starting. And The reason for fewer businesses starting, there are a couple of them. One is that, you know, uh, health insurance, which, you know, is always kind of a hot topic. Mm -hmm. But when they studied that, they found that fewer people are starting businesses because they're afraid of losing their health insurance. uh, Because maybe of a pre-existing condition. And they're afraid that if they lose their company where they've got, you know, company health insurance, And go out on their own, they may not be able to get their own insurance. And, you know, that puts them, maybe even puts their family at risk. So that prevents a high number of people from starting their own business. And what's interesting, and this is not a a political comment at all, but when the ACA passed the Affordable Care Act for the first time in a decade, for about two years, we saw the number of new businesses go up. Well, it just makes sense that people felt comfortable Um, that, you know, because there were no pre-existing conditions that they would have access to health care. Well, now we're in a a different place, and as a result, fewer people starting their own businesses. We've also got an issue around immigration, and again, this can easily be a political hot potato, but the reality is we have more restrictive immigration policies today. About 30% of new business startups can be directly tied to to immigrants, people who have, who have just joined this this country. About thirty percent of new startup activity is due to immigration. So when we restrict immigration, it just makes sense that we're also restricting uh, small business. Uh, the third factor that comes into play is is capital. You know, when businesses first get started, many of them need need startup capital and. For some, that means going to relatives, family members. For others, it means going to a bank. And and ever since the recession in 2008, bank capital has become increasingly difficult to acquire. We have a lot of, you know, community banks used to be the primary funders of small business. And about a third of our community banks are no longer with us since the recession. And so that that bucket of money has diminished considerably for small businesses, thus making it harder for for those businesses to get access to capital. So, number of reasons why business why more businesses are closing. Number of businesses. Number of reasons why we have fewer new businesses starting. Net net, small businesses on the decline in this country.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely lots of. Lots of points there. Um, so let's talk about growing small business and uh, being an advocate for that. Any suggestions for those that do have a business and helping them grow and take it to the next level?
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I, uh, thank you for asking that. It's, that's, you know, what I love being able to help people think about strategize uh, growing their business. And that's a lot of my consulting practice is, is around that. So a couple ideas around growing the business one is the the importance of having a plan and i'm, I'm sure your listeners have, have probably heard this heard this may, maybe it's been beaten into them that you know you've got to have a business plan but the reality is in the, the sba has studied this the small business administration fewer than 20 percent of all small businesses have any type of plan whether it's a, a strategic business plan a marketing plan a a financial plan, a people plan, an operations plan, any type of plan, I'll call it a napkin plan. Fewer than 20% of small businesses have any type of plan. And then again, you look at failure rates of small business. And again, it's more than 50%. And some judge it to be 75, 80% of small businesses fail within five years. I think there's a connection between those two that I I think that if, if a business does not have some type of plan, business plan in place, they're at they're at risk of failure. And I don't suggest to my clients that they need to do anything elaborate in that regard. Um, particularly if they're you know, if they've been in business for a while, I like a one-page business plan, one page that includes my goals, my objectives, my SWOT analysis, my strategies in the key areas of my business for the next year, all that on one page, something that I can reference easily, something that I can share with my employees, with my strategic partners, with my banker, so that they just one glance, one page, they have some sense of the direction of my business. A good business plan, Lori, is is a roadmap. It says, okay, how do I get from point A to point B? And that's, that's what the business plan should accomplish. Uh, another idea around growing a business is the importance of, of getting help. And again, th- th- there's no rocket science there. I'm in the business of, of providing help to small business at, as you are. And yet so many business owners, I find, try to go at it themselves. You know, They, they try to, the, the idea of being a solopreneur, you know, they maybe take to the extreme. They, they try <laughs> to do it on their own without getting help. And so I, I'm really a proponent for asking for help. I know as a business owner, I was reluctant to ask for help. Maybe it was a sign of weakness. Maybe I didn't know the right people. But I tried to do it my own and and boy did I make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and so you know whether it's it's coming to you for you know the marketing advice that I need or going to my CPA, going to an attorney, going to a consultant, you know, going to the the, uh, the Small Business Development Center, which is an arm of the SBA, going to SCORE. Those are volunteers that work with the SBA, but just a willingness to ask for help. And I've been involved in peer groups, you know, for small businesses for a long time. You mentioned Vistage, and I'm certainly a, a strong proponent of that. Of you know, surrounding yourself with with like-minded people. You know, this started with Ben Franklin back in the colonies. He was believed to be the originator of this idea of, of, of surrounding yourself with a peer group. He referred to his group as, he called it a Junto, J-U-N-T-O, a Junto. And so bank, uh, Franklin formed this Junto business advisors. They got together weekly and I really, Laurie, I really like the way he structured this once a week. They met in a bar <laughs> and they 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 had dinner and they had drinks and they stayed wee into the night i mean after hours just talking about business asking questions like like you know what did you learn this week and who did you meet this week and and what success did you have this week just posing questions like this to your peers and and he said it was amazing what they could learn from each other well you know that was back in in in, in what the you know the mid late 1700s and Look at where we are today, peer groups everywhere. So I just encourage business owners, find, find a group of, of peers that you can learn from. And the last thing I would suggest in terms of growing the business is, is understanding, and I learned this late in, in, in life, that, that in business there are natural barriers to growth. You know, we tend to think that if we're doing all the right things, our, our business should just naturally grow. But the, the reality, Lori, is that there are just natural barriers to growth. And what they have found is the, the first natural barrier to growth shows up uh, at about a million dollars in revenue. And research su- suggests to us that only 4% of all small businesses ever get past a million dollars in revenue. That's a small number when you think about it. Mm-hmm. 4%. Yeah. And what they have found is... that. The biggest, what causes this barrier, this ceiling to growth is the owner's either unability or or unwillingness, as what we just talked about, to ask for help. Because up to this point, as I'm growing this business, I'm doing everything, right? I'm in charge of sales. I'm in charge of marketing. I'm in charge of finance. I'm in charge of operations. I'm in charge of everything. And for a while, I can do that. To a point, I can be successful, but as the business grows at some point, I've got to be willing to, in some cases, step aside and maybe hire a strong number two and an operational person. I've got to be willing to outsource my marketing. I've got to be willing to, to hire a sales manager instead of trying to do all the sales myself. So the first barrier is all about stepping aside and being willing to ask for help. Then they found the next big barrier shows up at about $10 million in revenue. So I go from a million to 10 million. It's not easy, but I go from a million to 10 million, and all of a sudden, nothing is working. I can't grow this business anywhere past $10 million in revenue. Again, research suggests that only 0.4% of all small businesses ever get past $10 million in revenue, so it's, it's, it's an exclusive club. And when they've studied it, Lori, what they've found is it's, it's a very different dynamic at $10 million. And the dynamic is that up to this point, there's been little, little design in my business, little thought in terms of how the business should be organized, policies, procedures, systems, something as simple as checklists. But at some point, if I don't begin to organize the business and really give thought and time to how this business should be designed. I will hit this, this 10 million or so barrier because to, to continue to grow, there's gotta be, there's got I, I've got to eliminate the chaos. I've got to eliminate all the noise that's taking place in my business and really focus on organizing the business one so they can run without me because at some point, you know, they don't, they won't need me anymore. But just basically to be able to run without having amazing people, you know, the the best ideal business is a business that can run beautifully with average people. Wouldn't that be nice? Mm -hmm. And so that's the next big barrier. So that's what I find really important in terms of growing the business is having a plan, getting help, and then understanding what are the natural barriers to growth. Yeah,
0: I think those are great, um, fantastic insights to share. I'm sure all of our small business owner listeners uh, greatly appreciate that insight. Thank you. So the show here is really focused on networking. And my goal is to alleviate any fears that someone might have or any hesitations they have when they hear that word, networking. Tim, can you share with our listeners one of your most successful or favorite networking experiences that you've had?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, Laura. You know, I'm um, I've been fearful of that for for a long time. I think maybe <laughs> it's just part human nature. And then I found, you know, over time, a couple things that were helpful. One is that there was a book that was written. You may be familiar with it. It's a, It was written by a gentleman here in Atlanta, where I am. It's the book is called Net Weaving. <laughs> net weaving. And the idea behind the book is that when in a networking situation, rather than having a mindset of, so I'm, I'm meeting Lori at this networking event. And my mindset is, what can she do for me? How can she make my life better? How can she get me more business? How can she put money in my bank account? It's all about what can this person do for me? Well, net weaving takes a very different a different take. Net weaving suggests or asks a question when I meet you for the first time, what can I do to help you? What is it that that in this short conversation, what could I learn that would put put me in a position where I could be a benefactor of yours? And maybe it's it's connecting you with someone within my network or maybe it's recommending a book or maybe it's inviting you to another event that might be advantageous, but it's just turning the table. And I found when I adopted that mindset of, of, instead of saying, okay, what what can I gain from this person? Instead asking what, how could I help this person? Networking became just much easier for me. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does actually. How, yeah, helping, well, helping others first. Mm-hmm makes it easier at the end of the day
1: and just just having that mindset of yeah you know finding two or three people at an event and making a commitment that I'm, I'm gonna find someone that i can help in some shape or form
0: i i like the idea of going in and it's almost a game that you're playing like i i'm going to walk in and find yeah two to three people to help mm-hmm Instead of what, what am I going to get out of going to this event? Sure. So, um, you've, you've obviously got a lot of experience and you've, you've, you know, helping a lot of businesses and connecting with a lot of people. How do you stay in front of and nurture all of these relationships that you've created over time? Yeah,
1: that's, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um you know for many years it was doing what i think a lot of people do and it was attending different networking events with the chamber of commerce or the kiwanis or an industry group Uh, in today's world you know maybe using linkedin uh, to just reach out to people and then i I, kind of stumbled across something that i found worked better for me and that was i began hosting rather than going to events I began hosting my own events, and it started um, six, seven years ago. Uh, I began hosting a conference here in Atlanta. It's called the Small Business Matters Conference. And I thought, wouldn't it be neat to have my own conference? And I could invite people maybe who've never met, and they'll get a chance to meet people from this group, get to meet people from another group, and I'll bring in some speakers and just have a a one-day event where instead of me going to try to find people, people are going to come to this event. And some will be people I know and some will be people I don't know. What a great way to meet new people. So it just, so I, I, this idea of just creating my own event. And then this past year I took it to another level and once a month, I host a, a networking lunch and it's just, I, I invite people to come to lunch. I bring in a speaker. And again maybe half the people are people that i know and the other half are people that i don't know who are attracted to meeting those other people or maybe attracted to hear the speaker but i find for me that works really well is rather than going to other people's events that i have little control over the content or the the makeup of the people there is to host my own events where i've got more control over the content and more control over the the makeup of the group so that's just one, one small tactic that i found really works has worked well for me is just hosting my own events.
0: I love that. And that's, in, that's actually honestly been something that's been on my personal radar recently. Um, so I am intrigued on, on both of those and maybe we can talk off podcast sure. about some of these. That'd <laughs> be great. I'm really interested. I can see the value in that, um, it, it is quite a time investment I would imagine. Um, mm-hmm. but it's probably reaps significant rewards. I would imagine
1: as well. Lori, one of the, maybe the nexus of this or at least something that contributed to it was I remember seeing a Ted talk a number of years ago with Seth Godin, you know, the marketing guru, and he wrote a book called, uh, tribes. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea was that, that, each of us has our own tribe. We all have a group of people that we know, that we like to hang out with, that believe in the same things that we believe in to a large extent. And what, what Godin suggests in the book is that each of us should should be a leader in that tribe. We, we should aim to be the chief of our own tribe and to take that initiative. And I guess that's, I heard that Ted talk a number of times and that's what kind of spurred me to think, OK, I've got I've got a tribe. You've got a tribe. Your listeners all have their own tribe. And what maybe what we're failing to do is is taking on that leadership role of organizing, the you know, the tribal event. And that's that's all I decided to do was just take a leadership role in my own tribe.
0: I love it. I think that's fantastic. And it, you've been doing this for quite some time. So <laughs> that's great. I love it. Okay, so another question for you. What advice would you offer that business professional who's looking to grow their
1: network? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a good one. Nice to grow the network. I guess a couple things come to mind. One would be very, I would want to be very strategic in doing that just as you know, you're a marketing professional and, and you understand the idea of, of target markets, mm-hmm. I would, I would want to be very clear in my mind, the type of people that I might want to add to my network. I'd want to try to be as strategic as possible. You know, is it, am I looking for a certain professional? Am I looking, you know, for attorneys? Am I looking for, um, uh, uh engineers Am I looking for people older than me? Am I put looking for people younger than me? Do I want people in Atlanta? Or maybe I want I want people in Milwaukee. I want to build a, a market in Milwaukee. So I think number one, I'd want to be very strategic about what what that might look like in terms of, of growing my network. I think I'd also wanna be I'd want clarity around the return on investment. Mm. Because you know, as you know, in order to build my network, it's going to require an investment of time and money. And I think I want to be clear as to what that return on investment. Am I doing this for more sales? Am I doing this to add value to my business? Am I doing this because I just want to enlarge my sphere of influence? But I think I wanna be really clear about my, my rationale, my my purpose for expanding the network. And I guess the, the third thing that comes to mind would be um, who, who else wants to do this? Why do I need to do this alone? Who could I partner with? Who could I leverage to expand my network? Who do I know that could help me get there faster. I think we the tendency is to always want to do this on our own. But I think, you know, what? who could I leverage? What other networks could I gain access to? Where is there some synergy that I could get there faster? I think those would be the three things I'd focus on.
0: Yeah, those are great. I love that. I, I love the idea of being strategic and really investing your time to connect with the people that most closely align with, with your mission. Mm -hmm. Um, and clarity is, is definitely going to fall in line with strategic approach as far as, you know, what is your mission? Um, but that last tip that you shared, who do I know? I think that is probably one of the most powerful ones because it really encompasses the strategic and the clarity component. Um, because you're, you're diving in and saying, this specific individual has an established network and can really help me achieve my goals if I align myself closely to them. Mm-hmm. Very nice. All right, Tim, if you could go back to your 20-year-old self, what would you tell yourself to do more of, less of, or differently with regards to your professional career?
1: Oh, boy. Back to my 20-year-old self. Ooh Oh, boy all right uh, so number one've I've been a prolific reader over the last decade and when I think back to my early 20s that was not the case maybe maybe I was busy maybe it wasn't a priority but I didn't do a lot of reading and I have found you know that to be such an integral part of my life now in terms of learning that I, I would have been, uh, more mindful of, of, uh, of reading and of learning. Um, that's, that's one. Um, two. Yeah. And I think I mentioned this earlier that, you know, when I was young, I I just felt like so much had to be done alone by myself. And I, I didn't know that there was a Vistage group. And if I had, I'm not sure I would have joined it or Mm -hmm. a a peer group. Mm -hmm. It it just didn't seem natural. You know, I'd done everything on my own up to that point, point. and I did for well in, through my 20s, maybe into my early 30s, before I began to understand, you know, the power of 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 having peers and leveraging those peers. So I think I would have done that earlier. And the the third thing is, uh, six years ago, seven years ago. I had this crazy idea cuz I'm sure like many of your listeners like you maybe like yourself I was working crazy hours <laughs> 60 70 80 hours a week mm-hmm. and at some degree of success and then I I heard this somebody talk about this idea of taking a sabbatical and it seems so foreign you know the idea of taking a month off like who takes a month off I I struggled to take a week off. And even when I took a week off, I wasn't really taking a week off. And so the idea of taking a month off and yet for whatever reason, it, it was, you know, a crazy moment. I'm sure I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a month off. And so I so I took a month's sabbatical. And what I overlooked at the time was when I did it the first time, I didn't realize that I could never go back and not take a sabbatical. <laughs> Ever since then, every every year i take the month of june off and i was really afraid of the impact it was going to have on my career you know taking a full month off and yet what i found is that the growth of my practice actually accelerated when i took a sabbatical you know taking that month off and just you know sharpening the the stone and and relaxing mm-hmm. and such that my practice really grew faster And so, you know, if I were to go back, you know, my early 20s, I would have started taking a month off then. You know, in Europe, it's not uncommon at all that people take a month off, other parts of the world. But for whatever reason, this country, it's seen as a weakness, you know, if you take a long vacation. And the reality is, it's maybe the most important thing I've done over the last 10 years.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's... You're inspiring me, <laughs> but I, I'm in that 60, 70, 80 hour week, <laughs> work mode week right now. And I, I don't know, I'm just trying to figure out in my head how I, how I could realistically take a whole month off right now. <laughs> uh,
1: well, it's, what's interesting, if I may add it, it the, the benefit is twofold because my clients, mostly CEOs, I tell them the same thing, but it, there are two benefits. One is that just in terms of your health, my health, it's it's imperative that I take that much time off. Mm-hmm. That's number one. And whether, for family, for everything, it's really important. Yep. Secondly, what I tell my CEOs that think about: in order for you to take a month off, your business has to figure out how to get by without you. Yep. And if they're able to do that, all of a sudden your business just got far more valuable than it was before. Because if you ever go to sell your business, the first thing that a buyer is thinking about is, okay, what's gonna happen? If Lori is no longer active in this business, can this business still be successful? Yep. And if the answer is no, then your business has very little value. Yeah. Versus if you tell the, the the potential buyer, you know what, I take a month off every year, and this, ba- this business actually does better when I'm not here the value of your business just went up significantly. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I totally get that. I love it. It's an it's, uh, aspiration of mine.
1: <laughs> we're we're going to have to talk more. I can yeah, see Yeah, it
0: sounds like it. <laughs> well, we're getting close to wrapping up the show though. So Tim, um, any final word of advice off our listeners with regards to growing and supporting your network?
1: Oh, I think I think I've, I've I've shared as much as I can I can think of. Um, I want to thank you for for having me on. This has been fun. I can't believe how fast the time has oh, gone. Oh, it
0: sure does fly by.
1: Thank you for what you do. You know, I think it's so important that the business owners have access to a podcast like yours where they they can you know help themselves grow and and do it in in the right way and learn the importance of networking, I I think it's invaluable.
0: Oh, thank you so much. So Tim, if anyone was interested in getting in contact with you, what's the best way that they can reach you?
1: Sure. The the best way is the website. It's smallbusinessmattersonline.com, smallbusinessmattersonline.com. We have a monthly newsletter, Small Business Matters, that uh, they're welcome to subscribe to. It's free of charge. I mentioned the podcast. they're welcome to listen to this. after they've listened to your podcast, they're welcome to listen to <laughs> the matters podcast and i'm I'm happy to connect on an individual basis in and help in any way I possibly can.
0: That's great. We will include all this information in our show notes. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Laura, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. This wraps up our episode of Social Capital. A huge thank you to Tim for taking the time to connect with us. If you want to continue the conversation on networking and building your community, join our Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com and search Social Capital Network. If you need me, send an email to Lori at Social Capital Podcast. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. That's all for this episode of the Social Capital Podcast.